One other announcement. Remember, next Saturday is September 4th, beginning of the Labor Day weekend, and the Labor Day Conference, annual Labor Day Conference over at North Stonington Bible Church. The schedule for next Saturday is that Bible study begins at 10.30 in the morning. There's a session 10.30 to noon. Lunch, if you intend to be there for lunch, call and let them know you're going to be there. And then uh, Saturday evening, 7.30 to 9. Sunday morning, of course, you'll be here. And then uh, Sunday evening, 7.30 to 9 as well. Monday morning, they have a session at 9.30 and 11 uh, a.m. So uh, the speaker is Charlie Clough. The subject's going to be When God Ruled a Nation, an Introduction to Biblical Law. And this is an important topic. I remember studying some of Charlie's early developments in this area, listening to his Deuteronomy series that he did back in the 70s when he was pastoring in Texas. And this is an incredibly important study. People do not today don't understand law. When we think of biblical law, too often we think of the Mosaic law through the lens or the grid of the New Testament as it's been distorted by the Pharisees. But you see, the law as it was given to Moses isn't legalistic. It wasn't a means of salvation. It defined the law, the civil law for the nation Israel, and thus is the best possible legal system given to man because its source is God. Therefore, it's a perfect legal system and perfectly defines freedom. You don't define freedom autonomously through some sort of extra-biblical system of philosophy or politics. You don't go out and adopt a democratic view or a libertarian view or a republican view. You don't go over to England and study the monarchy and develop a monarchist view. You go to the Bible and you start with how the Bible defines freedom because that's what freedom is. It's not what you just think it is or what human beings have developed uh, through various systems over the years. You start, as I've said many times in the Genesis series, you start everything with the Bible. And that defines your parameters and gives you your framework for thought. And Charlie has done a tremendous amount of work on this, so I'm looking forward to this conference. We will get the tapes when it's done to make the tapes available here as well as to try to convert those over to MP3 and put them out on our website. I think that's it for announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we live in a nation that has freedom, freedom to worship you, freedom to teach your word, freedom to apply doctrine, freedom to grow spiritually, freedom to send out missionaries, freedom to support Israel. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect and preserve this nation, especially during this time of war, this time of continuous threats from terrorists continuous attacks from those who would seek to destroy this nation, both from inside and from without. 
We know that our only security, our only fortress, our only protection derives from you. And we pray that you might continue to protect this nation, that we may be a source of freedom, source of Bible teaching, source of missionaries, and a source of support for Israel. We pray especially for protection. This week we hear of uh, rumors of threats, terrorist attacks during the Republican Convention. We pray that if there are plots out there, if there are those who are seeking to create a disruption during this week or even in the months to come in light of the election, we pray that you would foil those plots, bring uh, their plans to the attention of those that can stop it, and we pray that you would continue to protect us. Father, we thank you for your word that it is a source of light and truth, absolute truth, through which we are able to understand all the details of our lives on the basis of which we can interpret all of the many things that happen to us. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we may be able to understand these things and that we will be challenged by them. And our desire, our heart's desire would be to glorify you in everything we think, say, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning on the doctrine of the will of God. We got into 1 Corinthians chapter 16 a couple of weeks ago, and Paul is discussing his plans, his plans in relation to his own travels, his plans in relation to Corinth, his plans in relation to those who worked with him. And I made the point that what we see in this passage embedded in this passage or what is lying behind the passage is some great inf- great information on how to go about the process of making decisions in our day-to-day lives of how to know God's will for the believer who is growing advancing in his spiritual life who desires to please God this is an important question and for many of us who have been in the same place, lived in the same house, been married to the same spouse for a number of years, many of life's major questions and decisions are, are not really pressing upon us. But they may in the future, and we have children, and it may uh, press upon them. We need to understand what the Bible teaches. We need to avoid both a sense of fatalism which is the idea that, well, God's will is just going to work itself out somehow, on the one hand, and a sense that God has a specific uh, plan for each and every decision that we make in life. And that leads to an obsessiveness uh, that, I mean, both options destroy individual freedom and destroy uh, individual responsibility. Because under the first divine institution, which is uh, human responsibility, we are accountable to God for the decisions that we make. In other words, it's not that God has made the decision for us already and we have to get involved in some sort of guessing game to figure out what that decision is. And if we miss, oops, that messes up the rest of our life. And we often think of that in major decisions. For You may think, well, what if I married the wrong person? Or what if I uh, picked the wrong major in college or went to the wrong university or I chose to live in California instead of Georgia or Massachusetts or wherever? You may mess up the rest of your life. Well, that isn't how the plan of God works. Uh, God is not a God who hides from us that which he wishes for us to do. He guides and directs us. Uh, sometimes we make wrong decisions. We make wrong decisions despite the fact we try to do everything right, or we think we make wrong decisions. What usually happens is you get into a situation, you make a decision, you get a job, you work for an employer, and some years down the road or maybe six months down the road, everything seems to go south. And it seems to have nothing to do with you. Maybe you get a really good job, you get a good job offer, great benefits package, and uh, this is your dream come true. And then you move halfway across the country, you settle down, you buy a house, you commit to a mortgage, and six months or 18 months later, that company gets bought out from somebody else, and the next thing you know, you've got a pink slip on your desk, and you're out of a job with a $150,000 mortgage hanging over your head and car payments and everything else. And you think, well, did I just misread the will of God? No, not necessarily. 
And on the other hand, one of the problems that people have is we want everything to be in tight, little, neat packages. So we always want to know exactly what God wants us to do. And the model that I am giving you for understanding the will of God is tough for a lot of people to understand, especially people who want everything sewed up. They want a specific answer on everything. They want God to have a specific statement of His will in every situation. And that's just not true. If you're an obsessive type like that, then you just need to relax. You just need to get a grip on reality and quit trying to get God to make every decision for you, because that's essentially what, what it is. God has to make every decision for me, then I have to figure out what that decision is. And that's just as much a denial of responsibility as fatalism is. Fatalism is the idea that God has every detail already planned out, and no matter what I decide, His plan is going to come to pass anyway, so why make any decision? See, if you follow that to its ultimate conclusion, why do anything? It's just going to happen. But the reality is that the Bible teaches that we're responsible for the decisions that we make. And that we make real decisions in life that have real consequences. And the issue in decision-making is how are you going to apply the doctrine that's in your soul? And if God does have a specific thing He wants you to do, or a specific task that He wants you to perform, or a specific place where He wants you to go, minister, live, work, whatever, then if you are in fellowship and you want to glorify God and you're seeking counsel from mature believers, from those who know you, and you go through all the right methodology for choosing a decision and you choose to go to Dallas instead of Houston or you choose to go to New York instead of Boston, and God will intervene and prevent that. And if you are seeking to do His will from a positive volition standpoint, then you will end up exactly where God wants you to be without too many bruises or broken limbs. But as we saw last time, there are those who, in negative volition, really, aren't, really are trying to avoid the will of God. And when God did have specific places or things for them to do, they sought to figure out a way not to do it. And, and Jonah tried to, to avoid going to Nineveh, so he headed to Tarshish. But God got him where he wanted through some pretty negative and offensive uh, things. You know, living in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights isn't a pleasure. Doesn't smell good. Doesn't uh, feel good. You know, none of your senses are pleased by the events. And so this was a very negative thing. This was a disciplinary action from God in order to get Jonah where he wanted to be. But see, Jonah's attitude wasn't, A, I'm going to be in fellowship. B, I want to glorify God. C, I want to do everything right. He was trying to avoid God's will. So as I pointed out last time, there's two instances in Scripture that are used many times by uh, people who haven't thought very profoundly about the Word of God to teach decision-making in the will of God. And that's Gideon and putting out the fleece and Jonah. And in both instances, they are trying to avoid what God wanted them to do. It's very clear we saw in Judges 6 that God told Gideon precisely what he wanted Gideon to do. And Gideon knew that was God speaking to him, called the angel of the Lord, Lord, built an altar to worship, knew he was speaking to God, knew exactly what God told him to do. But after a while, he decided, you know, this, is, this really isn't something I want to do. I, I don't want to, want to be the one to take on the Midianite army here. I'm not a military man. I'm not trained. I'm not really sure God told me that. Let's see if I can avoid it. So he came up with the two tests to, that he thought would be impossible for God to perform. One was to put dew on the grass and leave everything else, I mean, put dew on the fleece, leave everything else dry. And when that happened, he thought, well, let's just try it again, make it a little harder, put dew on the grass, but not on the fleece. And God, of course, in his infinite patience with us. See, that's another lesson from this, is God is infinitely patient with us in our creaturely disobedience. And he often... Uh, accommodates himself to our failures and our inability. So 
when people get all wrapped around the axle about how to make a decision, uh, usually it's because, and the reason it's so difficult, is because they're being torn between something they know in their soul they ought to do for biblical reasons, and it has to do with motivation. Maybe they know that the real reason they want to go to one place over another has to do with extremely selfish reasons or self-centered reasons as opposed to reasons that relate to ministry. Uh, just another note on, on geography. One of the important decisions you should make if you have to deal with relocation has to do with the spiritual food available for your family, for yourself and your family. And even though relocation may seem like a good thing, it may provide greater benefits in some areas, it may provide advancement in other areas. If you're moving to an area where there is a spiritual desert, then this, in the long run, is not going to be good for you because the ultimate priority in life is not what what matters for the physical flesh, but what feeds your soul and what prepares you for eternity. Uh, fortunately, today there are uh, you have tapes, we have the internet, we have uh, video ministries, things of that nature, which can certainly help. But this is a major factor, and it's getting to be a bigger and bigger factor for many people throughout the country because you may just be living in some place in the middle of Tennessee or Texas or Montana or the middle of New York or Boston or Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles, and there may not be a church teaching the truth within 30, 40 miles of you, within an hour's drive of you. I think that if you have doctrine taught somewhere within an hour or so, then you need to be involved in that local church. But if not, then it's difficult. And that's a standard situation in many, many places today. And it's getting worse. And uh, often I tell people, try to find a place. You know, they may sing a few songs you don't like. There may be an odd thing here or there that you really would rather not be that way. But if they're teaching the truth, then you need to be there. Who knows what opportunity God may give you to minister in that congregation. But on the other hand, there are many places where you don't even have that. I, got a, I remember some time ago I got an email from a man who was up in New Hampshire, Vermont. And they lived in a small town, not unlike some of the small towns around here, and there was nothing except, I think, a Methodist church and a congregational church and maybe a Roman Catholic church. That was it. So this uh, this guy was struggling because he felt like his children should be getting some exposure to church, teaching some some discipline related to church attendance. So he was going to a congregational church, and he emailed me, and he said, he said, Pastor, what do you think I ought to do? And I said, well... You need to get out of that congregational church. They don't even believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. So you have to make those decisions. And sometimes I run into folks who try to draw the line so tight that they're going to exclude 90% of what I would consider to be fairly decent churches. And they do so for secondary reasons. And uh, it's between everybody and the Lord, but we have to um, uh, we have those problems. So, decision making and the will of God is important for your own spiritual life. Now, I talked about the fact in the introduction. We've covered several points. We got down last time to point number nine, where we're dealing with specific examples. And I don't want to spend the time reviewing everything that we've covered so far. But we talked about three different terms that are important to understand. First of all, God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will includes everything, both good and evil, within human history. The evil, of course, relates to God's permissive will. He is going to allow evil because he allows freedom. Of course, that's one of the big issues is the question of how can a good God allow uh, evil, and it is only because if he didn't, he would not allow personal responsibility and freedom. Sovereign will includes everything, but it is unknown. We do not know what God's sovereign will is until after the fact. 
The second term that we use is God's moral will, and this is included under the concept of what we ought to do, both the positive commands of Scripture and the negative commands of Scripture. The moral will from God is given in the Word of God and is clearly known. You can't know it anywhere else other than studying the 66 books of the Bible. And then we have the third category, which is God's overriding will. See, this is what we saw in Jonah. Uh, God gave Jonah specific revelation, known revelation, to go to Nineveh. But in under his volition, Jonah chose to disobey God. And so God allowed him to sin and to disobey him. But then God came along in his overriding will and made sure that Jonah got exactly where God intended Jonah to go. But Jonah is a negative, negative example. Now, let's look at some other examples. We looked at how uh, these two Old Testament examples for avoiding the will of God in Gideon and Jonah. But let's look at a positive example. We have Abraham in the Old Testament, and God told him, to go somewhere. Let's just go back to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll just hit a couple of high points here in, in Abraham's movement. We'll cover this, start covering this in more detail on Wednesday night as we begin our study of, at the end of Genesis 11 on the life of Abraham. Abram left Ur of the Chaldees with his father and his family, and he went north to Haran. And it seems that the reason he left was because of the command in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, and to a land that I will show you. What do you have here? You have special revelation. God is speaking to Abram to tell him exactly where he wants him to be. Abram isn't contemplating his navel. He's not saying, well, I have a, I have a feeling. I hear a still, small voice. I have a peace that passes understanding, so I know this is where God wants me to be. No, this is the objective revelation of God telling him precisely where he wants him to go. Did Abram obey him? Partially. He got out of his country. He left Ur of the Chaldees and he headed to Haran, but he went with his father and he went with his nephew and he went with his family. Uh, and that was in disobedience, and so he was in Haran for a number of years before his father died. And then he finally left and completed his obedience to God, and he ended up in the, in the uh, promised land. But he had decisions to make even there. This is an instance where God had a specific geographical will for Abram. And that was in the land. And so he's in the land, but God did not necessarily have a specific place for him to be in the land, just in the land. Then, after he sets up his, his uh, uh, living dwelling place, east of Bethel and pitched his tent there. We'll study what that means. That's a fascinating concept. Pitching his tent doesn't refer to his dwelling place. He's not camping out. Okay? These tents have to do with establishing a worship site, a temporary worship site. Now, the picture that you get from liberal archaeologists and liberal historians is that Abram's just another Bedouin nomad going through the land. Abram was in the land for a number of years. He's not a nomad. He's not living in temporary places. He was extremely wealthy. He had permanent dwelling places. But these tents that he is establishing is that he is establishing worship sites to Yahweh throughout the land that God has promised him. This is a key concept throughout the life of Abraham. And his movement throughout the land wasn't because he is... He is uh, like a Comanche Indian moving from one campsite to another because he's pretty much used up all the local uh, 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 resources. But he is moving about the land because he is establishing what the, the boundaries and the dominion over the land that God has given him. And God has told him to walk the land, its length and its breadth, 
because that's the land that God has given him. So what he's doing is he is scoping out the territory that God's given. That's why he's moving around, not because he's, he's homeless, but because he is learning about the territory that God's given him. But he has a little adversity in verse 10 of chapter 12. There's a famine in the land. What does he do? He goes down to Egypt. We don't see him counseling with God about the decision. He's got a problem, and rather than trusting God to provide for him, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hand and go down to where there's, there's food. See, here's an option where he's been told where to go, and he chooses against it. And he leaves, but he's exercising volition. Of course, God's going to bring a little discipline into his life to get him back to where he's supposed to be. And this is the point I'm making. When and if God has a specific place for you to be, if you are positive in trying to obey God and do what is right and serve the Lord, then you'll get there, and it's not going to be difficult. God will make a few things very clear to you, usually through circumstances or advice, or he as... Um, or he'll just give you the desire to do it. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah often says, and the Lord put it in my mind to do something. And we're not talking about special revelation here. It's not that God spoke to him. Nehemiah never says, and God spoke to me, or I heard the voice of the Lord or the Holy Spirit said. He uses uh, the phrase, and, and the Lord put it in my heart to do something. In other words, he had the desire to to build the walls around Jerusalem and to finish developing and establishing the fortification around Jerusalem. And he knew that that desire was a desire that was in line with the plan of God as revealed in Scripture. And so he attributed his desire to do that to God. And I think we can, we can do that. We, can, we know we want to do something. Let's say you wake up one day and you decide, uh, you've been thinking about it, and you decide that you want to be a missionary. I think you can say God put that on your in your mind, but don't say God spoke to you. Those are two different things. I think God God gives us certain desires to do His will. But on the other hand, if you're if you're negative and you uh, choose to and you're just making choices because this is what's best for you, then God eventually will get you where He wants you. If there is a specific place, He'll get you there through a little discipline. Now, God doesn't always want you in a specific place. But there are times when God does want us in specific places. And when He wants us in specific places, we get there. And when He, uh, when it's not really an issue of being in a specific locale, then what the test is, is how we go about the decision-making process and not the particular conclusion we come up with. There may be two or three conclusions that are good and valid and honorable and serve the Lord and glorify Him. What God's concerned about is putting us in a test situation and seeing how we're going to go through the decision-making process. And that's the test, how you're going to decide, not what you're going to decide. So it's a methodology test and not an end result test. And just because God can override a bad decision doesn't mean that we end up in fatalism. See, fatalism says that it really doesn't matter what I decide. God's sovereign will is always going to work itself out. But that completely destroys individual responsibility. And so we have to walk between these two lines. And human beings, this, I think the sin nature is prone to always rationalize in those two directions. Either, well, God's going to do it, so why should I do anything and yield to some sort of fatalism? or else try to get God to make every single decision. And both of them come from a basic motivation of trying to ultimately remove responsibility. Let's say I make a decision, and I evaluate all of the evidence, I talk to everybody according to all of the information that I have, and I have done a, a, a profound job of seeking out all the data, and I make a decision, and it seems best, and I've talked to wise, mature uh, friends who counsel me that, you know, as far as they can tell, looking at the data, looking at the situation, it's a good decision. And 18 months later or two years later, something happens. I, I get fired or, or the company gets bought out by somebody else or uh, you discover that your house is, is built on an old landfill and it's crumbling or whatever it is. You made that decision. Now, see, if you have the idea of, of either fatalism 
or that God makes every single decision and has a specific will for you. See, you just blame God. It's not my fault, it's God's fault. Well, we have to take responsibility for our own decisions. And sometimes, you know, the Lord wants us to be in that spot, and it is God's will for us to be there because He wants to take us through a series of adversities because now He's going to work on our spiritual growth. So don't ever evaluate the correctness of a decision based solely on the fact that it ends up with certain negative consequences. Okay, we've looked at Abram. We've looked briefly at Nehemiah. Let's turn to the New Testament. Look at a couple of examples of how God leads the will of God in decision-making in, uh, in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. It would be nice to be able to go through these passages with a PowerPoint, but the demons are in the machine still. Acts chapter 10, verse 17. I don't mean that literally. There's always somebody who's going to say, Oh, he believes a demon can get inside that computer. Well, sometimes I'm tempted. Now, I want you to start by looking at verse 17. Verse 17. And then we'll go back and we'll, we'll look at what happens just before that. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Okay, the New American Standard translates it, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to the meaning of the uh, what the vision he had seen might be. In other words, Peter sees this vision, and he's really confused because it's rocking his basic assumptions about reality. Peter grew up under the Mosaic Law, and there were certain absolutes, certain fixed realities in the Mosaic Law. And one of those realities had to do with what was clean and unclean and the relationship of Jews to non-Jews. Non-Jews are called Gentiles. And Peter sees this vision that changes the whole framework. So let's go back and and, um, pick up the vision. Go back to verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop. He is in the city of Caesarea, uh, over near the coast, and he, and he is staying there ministering in the area. And he went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Now the Old Testament prohibited Jews from eating certain things that were classified as unclean. Now, unclean doesn't have to do with health. You know, every now and then you come up with a, a um, somebody comes out with some sort of diet book or somebody makes some claim that if you just followed the Mosaic Law, that was a healthy diet. That's why God gave it to the Jews. Doesn't the Scripture say that if you follow the law that none of these, you won't suffer from any of these diseases? And there is that promise. But you see, that's related, that isn't a health thing. The reason you won't suffer from the diseases is because God in His grace was going to provide physical health to the Jews if they were being obedient to Him. The clean and unclean were not categories related to health. They were related to ritual worship in the tabernacle or the temple. That God could not was not going to uh, allow them to, to be involved with anything classified as unclean and then come in and worship. Why? Because that which was unclean was that which was in some way associated with the curse of sin. It was like such as touching a dead body. Uh, it, there's nothing moral or immoral about teach, touching a dead body. But 
the reason there was death was because of sin, and so if you touched a dead body, you were rendered ceremonially unclean. See, that's what those terms, clean and unclean, have to do with. It, they don't mean moral or immoral, and they don't mean healthy or unhealthy. So if you eat scavenger fish or catfish or lobster or shrimp, you couldn't do that under the Mosaic Law because they ate, see, they're scavengers, they ate dead things. But that doesn't mean they're unhealthy. That was not the idea. Because if health was a factor in the, in the semantic meaning of the word clean, then what does it mean here when God says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common, in verse 15. God has now cleansed all these things. See, that would mean that if there were health issues related to eating pork or catfish, and certainly there were, but that's not what this was talking about. I mean, if you don't cook pork all the way through, you can get, what, trichinosis or other diseases. If you're not uh, careful with eating shellfish, you can have other diseases. Sure. That, wasn't what, that had nothing to do with the law. Because what God says here is all these things are now cleansed. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. So now all of these things are clean. But did they learn anything new about sanitation? No. Did they learn anything new about nutrition? No. Did they learn anything new about the health benefits or lack of health benefits of any of these animals? No. What changed? The dispensation changed. The law was ended. So these things were now clean because they weren't related to the ceremonial function or operation of the tabernacle or temple anymore. I can't tell you how hard it is for some people to get that through their heads. And every now and then, now somebody may come up with a great diet, and, it may, and they may discover that there are certain health issues related to eating uh, pork or selfish. Great, fine. But don't you dare mention the Bible with it. Because that wasn't the point of these things. It was completely different. And God now says it's okay to eat these things. That doesn't mean they're all healthy. You know, God, this doesn't have anything at all to do with diet or health. Just get that completely out of your mind. It doesn't have anything to do with diet or health. It had to do with the ceremonial issue of being clean or unclean. In the Old Testament. Okay, well, that's just an aside because that issue comes up every now and then, and so I have to deal with it. Now, Peter has a decision to make, though, because all of his life he has been told that you don't associate with Gentiles and you don't eat this kind of food. And being a good Jew, he didn't associate with Gentiles and he didn't eat unclean food. But now he has a decision to make. And God uh, gives him this vision, and afterwards he's, he's confused by it. He was so confused by it that God had to lower the tablecloth and make the pronouncement three times according to verse 16. Peter was a little slow, had to have that repetition and inculcation to get the point, and he's still confused, verse 17. And so while he's thinking about it, men who had been sent by Cornelius to Peter uh, came to his gate. In verse 18, they called out and they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. Verse 19, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, okay, so he's getting what? Direct revelation. The Spirit is speaking to him. How is the Spirit speaking to him? Is this an external audible voice? We don't know. So don't read into the text your presupposition about how God speaks to people. Uh, believers get this idea, well, God spoke to me. You know, I just had this sense. Hogwash. You know, everybody has senses. Believers, unbelievers, everybody has some level of intuition. Don't blame it on God. The Spirit spoke to him. I, I personally believe this was an external, objective communication. Because that fits, and there's nothing anywhere in the New Testament to indicate that these kinds of statements were internal, private, subjective experiences. That he just heard a voice in his head. 
So the Spirit spoke to him and said, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. You see, even if it was private, even if it was, and it was private because there's nobody else there to listen. See, when the when the Christ speaks to uh, Peter, I mean to Paul on the Damascus Road, only Paul clearly heard what was said, but those with him heard the sound of the voice. But because God didn't have a message for them, it was it was muted and distorted. They couldn't hear what specifically what was said, but they knew they heard a voice. And they heard a sound. So uh, if, even if uh, this was private, when God does give private revelation, does this many times in the Scripture, well, you're the only one there. God gives a private revelation, or not you, but the prophet, the Old Testament is the only one there. God always confirmed it through external circumstances. God, and the principle is that God never does anything in private that he doesn't verify objectively externally. So Peter then goes down to the men who had been sent to him for Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? So the point that I'm making is that Peter is being directed according to the will of God, but it's through direct revelation. It is not through some inner, inner small voice. It's not through some sense of our conviction or intuition. And it is confirmed externally. When Peter goes to Cornelius, of course, they become saved. They are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this is external confirmation that this was exactly where God wanted them to be. Turn over a couple of chapters to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. Now, here's a situation where the church in Antioch recognizes that under the principle of the Great Commission, I mean, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, they need to begin to send out evangelists beyond their immediate location. Verse 1, we read, Now in the church there was at Antioch, uh, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then it lists them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So, these were people who had come from different parts of the Roman Empire. Now, for whatever reason, either they were slaves or because of their job, uh, because of uh, travel, whatever it was, they were in Antioch of Syria. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and notice there's no command anywhere to fast in the Scripture. This is never is it commanded. It is always simply uh, mentioned that this is what people did, and fasting wasn't a health factor. Fasting didn't make you more uh, didn't make you more acceptable to God. Fasting didn't give did not give power to your prayer. Fasting was done because it was a sign that what you were engaged in was more important than eating, more important than doing other things. And and you know I find it very silly today. The, the churches will say, well, we're going to fast this week. But uh, or we're going to have a meat fast this week, or we're going to have, you know, whatever it is, a dessert fast this week, or, or something. I mean, it's these partial fasts. Look, when, when these people got serious about prayer, they quit eating. They quit doing other things. They got down to business, and they focused on prayer. And they might pray for five or six hours or all day, and that was their focus because this was important, this was the priority, and then when they were over it, then they would eat. But that was the point in fasting, was that they were just... They were indicating the priority of what they were doing, and it didn't impress God. It didn't make their prayers more efficacious. So they were uh, ministering to the Lord and praying, studying the Word, and the Holy Spirit said, Now separate me to Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He spoke to all of them. They all heard the same message. This indicates to me that it was either an external voice they could have been recorded on a tape recorder, or they all heard it in their head, and they all heard the same thing. They said, did you hear what I just heard? And they all heard the same message. Now, you can't all hallucinate the same thing. We don't have group hallucinations. So whichever way it was, the Holy Spirit made it clear what they were to do. They were to separate out Barnabas and Saul to go on the mission field. 
to begin to take the gospel out. Separate out Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called him. And verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And they go on their trip, and they go from one location to another, but there's no indication at this point that the Holy Spirit is telling them which city to go to and which city not to go to. It is up to them to utilize their own responsibility, their own intellect, their own decision-making to decide the methodology, how are we best going to uh, proclaim the gospel and communicate the gospel to these people. They don't sit around every morning going, well, God, show us how we're supposed to do this today. They think about it. They weigh the options. They understand the culture, and they say, okay, Here's a poor town. That's where most of the people are. Let's hit there first. That seems to be Paul's methodology. So they're using wisdom in making the decision. Of course, they're praying to God every day to guide and direct them. They're putting their decisions in the Lord's hands, but they're not praying for God to show them how to make every decision. They're using the wisdom, the intelligence, the talents that God gave them to make the right decision and trusting God for the Process Now, as I pointed out, there were times as Paul traveled that the Holy Spirit made it clear where they were supposed to go. Sometimes he didn't. There's no indication that the Holy Spirit said, go to Iconium, now go to Derby, now go to Antioch. But when Paul went back on the second missionary journey and he wanted to go to Asia, the Holy Spirit shut it down. When he wanted to go to Bithynia, the Holy Spirit shut it down because the Holy Spirit said it's time to go to Europe. He had a vision to go to Troas, and he took the gospel over to uh, Philippi and to Greece. And there were times like that when God specifically shut down things, but it wasn't for, all, for the long term. Eventually, Paul did make it to the province of Asia, set up shop for two years in, in uh, Ephesus, and we're told in Acts that the gospel went out throughout the entire province of Asia. So you see, there, that's an example of how the decision-making uh, process went on. Let's look at another example. Turn over another couple of pages to Acts chapter 15. Now here's a, here's a conflict situation where there is a theological debate going on between uh, different elements within the, within the early church. There are those who still hadn't quite caught the message from Acts 10, that the church is now open to Gentiles. And the Gentiles are clean, and believing Gentiles are one with Jews in the body of Christ. They haven't figured that out yet. So they're still trying to impose the Mosaic law and Judaism on these new Gentile converts. And then there are others with Paul and Barnabas and Peter who understand that God's got a new thing going with the church, And it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. What matters is if you believe in Christ, and if you do, you're in Christ, and the law is dead and gone and over with. So they get together for what is called the Jerusalem Council, and they have this uh, meeting, and everyone speaks, and they make their case. Uh, Peter talks about what happened to him in Acts chapter 10 and how God opened the door to the Gentiles in verse 14. And... uh, then they, after they get through listening to, to Peter and they evaluate all of the, all of the evidence uh, from Barnabas and Paul, that, that's mentioned in verse 12, then they make a decision. Look at verse 22. Here's the decision. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Okay, they had to make a decision. Okay, their decision was that was given in verses um, 19 through 21. And the decision was a doctrinal decision, and that's based on revelation. So that's not our issue here. What do you do once you make that doctrinal decision? How do you apply it? How do you carry it out? See, the doctrinal issue was clear. That's based on revelation. Then, once they made the decision that they weren't going to put the Gentiles under the Mosaic Law... They had to make other decisions, administrative decisions. Do we read that they that it was God's will for them to do this? No. What we read is it pleased the apostles and elders. Another translation says, and it seemed good to them. You see, they're applying wisdom at this point. 
How, what do you do? How do you carry out this decision that you've just made? How do you implement it? Well, let's think about it. Let's have a business plan, communication plan for taking the information to the other churches and applying the information. Uh, are they sitting down and saying, who do we send? God, tell us who to send. No, it seemed best to them to send uh, Paul and Barnabas along with Judas and Silas to make, carry the message and to make this communication. So you see, the, on one side there is specificity of God's will and precision because of specific revelation. But in other areas, there's not specific revelation. There's no right way or, or wrong way necessarily. It's based on your individual responsibility and application of doctrine to make a wise decision. And this is what, what they did. And then we skip down to verse 25. As they communicate that message, uh, starting verse 23, you have the content of the letter that they, they carried with them back to Antioch. And in that letter they say, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They didn't say, It's God's will for us to send these guys with you. You know, Silas, you don't find Silas and, and Barnabas and Paul saying, well, God's geographic will for me right now is to be somewhere else. Now, see, this is an administrative decision. They're using wisdom to make the decision. Once again, my point is, there are times when God wants you to be in a specific place. X marks the spot. But God will make it clear. If you are in fellowship, walking with the Lord... And even if you decide to go to Y and somehow miss all the signals and mess up, Y is going to shut down. You're going to find yourself on X without any major problems or heartache or difficulty. And uh, the same thing is true. Let's say you, you are convinced God wants you in place X and uh, the decision's up to other people and they decide that you need to go to Y. Guess what? you'll still end up in X because people can't frustrate the will of God if God wants you a certain place. And there are examples of that in Scripture. Okay, so here we have this example that it just seemed good to them to make the decision. Then verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the ne- these necessary things. Now what happens there? This has to do with the content of the message. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. That's the direct revelation aspect. So you see you have specificity given through special revelation, but God isn't speaking today other than through His Word. So God is not giving special revelation in terms of decision-making today. At most, in the New Testament, there's about, or in all of Scripture, there's about 15 to 20 examples of specific guidance in the Scripture where God is saying, I want you to be in X location and do Y event. The rest of the time, it's a matter of individual decision-making and responsibility under the divine institution number one, where the individual believer is responsible to take the from the resources of doctrine in his soul, make decisions that glorify God and are are in terms of serving the Lord and advancing in spiritual growth. So that covers our ninth point in terms of biblical examples. So point number ten then. Knowing God's will is then based on the grace learning spiral. We haven't talked about the grace learning spiral in a while, so let's go back and briefly review it. You have a pastor teacher who communicates the word of God And the individual believer is supposed to be in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is filling your soul with Bible doctrine. You exercise volition at this point, positive volition, whether or not you want to. Well, first of all, you exercise positive volition to be there. Then you exercise positive volition to uh, believe it. You have to think about it and understand it. You can't believe something you don't understand. I mean, in some sense. I mean, there are certain things about God that I don't understand and I believe it, but I understand the basic meaning of the proposition. When, when I say God is omniscient, I know what that means. I may not have a full comprehension of what omniscience is, but I know, nevertheless, enough about omniscience to be able to believe it or disbelieve it. But see, there are so many Christians who sit out there and they just listen to the pastor and they regurgitate what he said, but they don't understand it. They really don't. They're just able to regurgitate what he said, but they haven't figured out how to under, uh, what it really means yet. 
That's true for every one of us, and that's part of the learning process. You may hear something a hundred times, and then one day you're sitting out there, and I say it for the hundred and first time the same way. You go, oh, that's what that means. And all along you were saying, yeah, I believe that, but you really didn't understand the proposition that I was talking about. We've all gone through that, and that's part of the growth process. So once we understand it and believe it, then it becomes gnosis in the soul. That is, uh, usable doctrine, uh, that just, um, no, gnosis in the soul becomes knowledge. And then, it's, when we're filled with the Spirit, it's converted into and placed in the heart which is the core area of the soul where our thinking takes place, and there it's epinosis. And this is usable doctrine. Well, we have to exercise positive volition again to use it or to apply it. So volition comes to play several times. We have to use volition to be there to hear it. We have to exercise volition to believe it. And we have to uh, then exercise volition in epinosis to apply it. So that's Operation Z. This is what fills up our soul, or this is rather the grace learning spiral. This fills up our soul with doctrine. This fills up our soul with doctrine that we can apply in all of life's situations. So that's the issue in uh, decision-making, is first of all, we have to know the Scriptures. Colossians 4.12, Paul said, Epaphras who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, that is mature, and fully, fully assured in all the will of God. And in that context, being fully assured and, and mature in the will of God is really the objective, revealed will of God in his word. Romans 12.2 states, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking that you may prove what the will of God is. Well, how do we demonstrate what the will of God is? That's what prove means there is to demonstrate what the will of God is. Because our mind has been changed and transformed by what's in the Word. Ephesians 5.17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Again, it's knowing Scripture. So it starts with understanding Scripture through the grace learning spiral. It's available to every one of us. We can all learn. It's not limited to education, culture, background, IQ, any of those human factors. Point number 11 is we learn doctrine. The Holy Spirit then stores that doctrine in our soul. And He is the one who brings it back to our conscious thought. It's part of the operation of the filling of the Spirit. There's retention in the soul, and there's also recall. He brings it back, retrieves the information for us, brings it back to our thinking for application in the specific situation. So point number 12 then, unless there's a specific statement of Scripture that something is approved or prohibited, something is mandated or forbidden, unless there's a specific situation, then God expects us to just apply wisdom to the situation, and wisdom is the result of epinosis. The Old Testament term for it is, is a chokhmah, H-O-C-H-M-A-H, chokhmah. And it's, that's why you have the wisdom literature, such as Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Chokhmah is not epinosis. It is the application of epinosis. It is epinosis doctrine, the doctrine stored in our soul, applied to life's situations. So this is the model for understanding the will of God. And this is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So let's wrap up this morning by going back and just briefly seeing how that applies to our, chapter, to our section in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says in verse 5, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. You don't see him saying, well, it's God's will for me to do this. He's making his travel plans. And we saw from a study of 2 Corinthians 1 that apparently Paul something came up and Paul decided he needed to make a quick trip to Corinth to straighten things out before he went to Macedonia. <coughs> so there was flexibility there based on the circumstances and situation an application of wisdom. He's making his plans. 
But remember what James says, take no thought for tomorrow that you're going, you will do this or do that unless you say first, unless it's the Lord's will. See, that's the idea. We, our overriding attitude is, Lord, this is your will. Lord, I'm in fellowship. Lord, you know I want to glorify you. And this is my plan, but that's subject to God's uh, overriding will. And this is what Paul recognizes in verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you. He's not sure yet. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. You know, that depends on how, how I find things. And that, then that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. See, this is the underlying attitude. I don't know what the Lord's permissive will will be in that situation. But we'll see what happens when we get there. And his plan is to tarry or to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, until uh, really the, about the end of May when travel weather will be better. He says, For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. He has two things. He has great opportunity, but also great opposition. Because there is great opportunity to teach the Word and to uh, evangelize, he wants to stay as long as he can. So that so he's looking at circumstances there and says, I have this great opportunity here. Obviously, the Lord's opened the door, so I need to stay here as long as I can. But then I have other responsibilities that I must, must carry out. And he says, and if Timothy comes, he's already sent Timothy, but he hasn't arrived yet, so he doesn't know when that will be. That's the purpose of the if. It's if Timothy comes, i.e., when he comes. I don't know when that will be. See that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace. In other words, show good manners to him, respect his authority, listen to what he teaches, obey him, he's my representative. And this is the attitude Christians should have towards pastors and missionaries. They show respect, show honor, take care of them uh, when, they, when they're coming through. Do what you can. Uh, use some... Uh, uh, use your own initiative to try to come up with ways to uh, honor these men who have given their lives to serving the Lord. And then Paul says in verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, now the Corinthians knew Apollos, he had been there and taught before, says, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. Here's an apostle telling a pastor, you ought to go to Corinth. And this is Paul talking. Now, I would say, yes, sir, Paul, I'm on my way. But Apollo says, no, look, I've got other things to do here that are important. I don't want to go to Corinth right now. I've got ministry here that I need to take care of. I'm going to stay here. You don't see Paul saying, it's God's will, get out of town, hurry over there. And Apollo isn't saying, no, if it's God's will for me to stay here. See, they're making decisions on what seems to be best, taking all the doctrine in their soul, their personal responsibilities, and making decisions on what's best at the time. So Paul urges Apollos to come over there, but Apollos was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient opportunity. That's decision-making in the will of God. A lot of people don't like this particular model because it means that you're a lot more responsible for your decisions. And you can't blame God for bad decisions. And you can't blame God if things don't work out right. And it puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that you need to evaluate circumstances and make decisions based on the doctrine that's in your own soul. And that's the issue. And that you don't have some God predetermining every decision for you along the way. Next time we'll come back and probably wrap up our study of 1 Corinthians before we get into our, our study this fall on how we know we can trust the Bible with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, uh, the opportunity to realize that your word gives us specific direction in so many, many areas. That once we know that we are operating within that framework, filled with the spirit desires to serve you, that it really really provides tremendous guidance. And we know that behind the scenes you are working and you will direct our paths, that even even if we make a decision that may not be so, so great, you override those decisions and you will guide and direct us and that we can have confidence in that. 
but that also we have responsibility for the decisions that we make and the results of those decisions. And our desire ultimately is to serve you, to glorify you, and to grow to spiritual maturity that you may be glorified to the maximum. Now, Father, we thank you for what we've studied today. We thank you for the challenge that we have. We also pray for any who may be here this morning who are unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they may take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. It is God's will for you to be saved. He sent his son to die on the cross for your salvation. But the issue is up to you. God's not going to make the decision for you. He's not going to blast you out of the pew and tell you you're saved. The choice is yours to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. At the instant that you trust in him, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied today and pray that we may be responsive to their challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.